Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. My name is Cameron Borg. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Professor Glenn Jeffrey. Glenn Jeffrey is a professor of neuroscience in the Faculty of Brain Sciences and Institute of Ophthalmology at the University College London. His research is focused on areas including retinal structure, development and visual areas of the brain, as well as the comparative evolution of the brain. In the last decade, his work has been centred around public health, looking into cost-effective and safe ways to prevent and even reverse the increasingly common condition macular degeneration. His research has delved into the mechanisms that underpin the ageing process and applied these findings to the most energy-demanding cells in the body, the retinal cells. In the last few years, Glenn's lab has been at the forefront of using light to restore the pathological condition of macular degeneration. By using wavelengths of red and near-infrared light at the correct time of day, Glenn and his colleagues have shown that these wavelengths of light can help the organelles called mitochondria produce energy more efficiently, offsetting some of the damage caused by aging. This extremely low-cost modality with an unparalleled safety profile may indeed become something that is used widely in the future to prevent and restore metrics of vision in our aging population. I've been following Glenn's work for several years now, so it was an absolute honour to be able to sit down and have a chat with him. Uh, We spoke about his experience as a researcher, dangers of artificial lights, how simply using red and near-infrared light can be beneficial to many aspects of health, and what role the sun plays in health. We also spoke about where his research is headed, and much, much more. I'm extremely excited to be able to share this episode with you, so with all that being said, I hope you enjoy it. How you doing, Glenn? Yeah, I'm doing uh, really well, thank you. Awesome. Um, I'd love to know how you got into looking at um, how the eye uh, ages. Uh, it seems like a pretty nuanced topic. Um, how did you get well, into Well, it's not that nuanced for two reasons. One is I'm getting old. Uh, and the other issue is that the retina in the eye ages faster than any other part of your body. So it's a really good model for aging. And the other thing I suppose associated with this is as we age, uh, quality of our visual life declines. So it's a really good target to, um, it's a good target because it suffers badly with aging. It's a good target because that suffering with aging really affects the quality of our life. That's why I went for it initially. So you speak about how the cells in the retina are not just among the most metabolically uh, demanding, but the most metabolically demanding cells. Um, They require an enormous amount of ATP. Um, I'm just wondering why do you think that the um, cells in the retina do require so much energy? Is it because we're such visually oriented creatures? Fundamentally, yes. But there are some really strange things about the way the retina works. it's actually stressed beyond belief when you close your eyes. When you, when you dark adapt, um, uh, let's say that I, I put you into a completely dark room, the cells in your retina, they, they basically say, you know, we've got to put more energy in the system to detect what's going on. And it's like turning the gain up on your amplifier. So they get really stressed. They're looking for a signal. They're looking for a signal. They're putting more and more energy into that. So that's one good reason. The other reason is that as you move around the world from light to dark, you have to undergo enormous adaptations that very often you're not conscious of. 
So uh, there's there's nine. You, you are sensitive to light over nine log units. That's an enormous range. That's just enormous. And, and you're doing it most of the time and you're not even aware of it. So for that reason, again, you, the, the retina is absorbing enormous amounts of energy. Yeah, right. That's uh, that's fascinating. I didn't know the nine log part, but yeah, like um, the, even the the lux um, measurements can go from very low to very very high. So we have yeah. to be able to adapt. Um, yeah. One thing I wanted to know was if these cells in the retina are extremely metabolically demanding. One would think that there may be extra compensatory mechanisms to deal with the additional stress. Um, that comes with the excess uh, reactive oxygen species that might be uh, made in the retina. So are there any extra um, compensatory mechanisms in the retina um, that help to combat the um, byproducts of metabolism? Um, well, it's got a fantastic vascular supply and the byproducts of metabolism sometimes occur as extracellular deposit stuff that comes out, but fundamentally, um, what you've the question you've asked actually is a very very real problem. Um, we don't have that we've detected some great mechanisms for dealing with this, and partly, which is you know partly the the reason for this is that our visual system copes with this problem until we're about forty, and then after that we start to get a load of aged problems. Now forty. <laughs> is roughly the maximum lifespan that we would have had throughout our evolution. So it's all tuned to work rather well, but the unfortunate thing that's happened to the whole system is that we're pushing lifespan well beyond its natural biological limits. And, and in that situation, things don't work. Things just don't work. And a big challenge for us um, is how we play with that area of time beyond our natural lifespan you know, what we do as a society to pick up the problems there. Right. Well, something that's um, come to mind just now, uh, I got interested in iron toxicology um, a few years ago through a friend of mine, and I saw a paper that you wrote about iron accumulation in the eye without respective accumulation of uh, similar minerals like copper and zinc and sulfur. Um, what role is iron playing in the eye with its redox cycling capacity and, um, you know, capacity to uh, basically be a complete carcinogen uh, with its continual redox cycling? Yeah, um, I think that paper, which was, I mean, it, would be, it was done in my lab by a clinician who had a long history of working in that, in that field. And again, to be honest with you, iron stands out as doing something very peculiar. It really does in the retina, but it doesn't fit within any particular framework that we have for why it accumulates in the way and the position it does over time. Now, normally you would have, you know, as a result, I'd have gone, okay, yeah, iron accumulates a bit, not, you know, not too sure what that does. But then the amount of iron that accumulates was very surprising. And the fact, as you point out, other metals really were not accumulating in that, in that manner. So there is something going on in particular parts of the retina with the accumulation of iron with age that we are assuming, not necessarily with a lot of justification, is something that should be avoided but we just don't know what i liked about that study was that that study was done in uh primates that had lived all their life on a very very strict diet 
So they had a very, very standard diet. One of my big problems with aging and my problem that I have with the noise that occurs in human aging is people eat different things. People have got different lifestyles. And so to have access to groups of primates that spend all their life on a, a what basically a great diet, you know, very little fat, um, uh, no sugars, uh, mainly fruit and protein. That is a fantastic resource. Now, I'm not, I am happening, happening to be fortunately able to pick up the tissue of these animals when they've reached their natural lifespan or used for completely different purposes, but it's a fantastic tool. I'm really interested in what is the relationship between what we eat and what we do and the pace at which we age. Um, and every time I get involved in that, I find that the noise in the data is enormous just because so you ask someone, do you smoke? And they go, no. But then you found out that 10 years ago, they'd smoked for 15 years. So, you know, people, people forget to tell you things. People are not always desperately honest. Um, but in my move towards nearly, my lab is now nearly all human research. Um, I keep looking back to those primates and thinking that was a cleaner story. That was a cleaner story. So, yeah. Interesting. Well, I haven't heard you speak much about um, dietary components or um, vitamins and minerals so much as the light, which I'd love to get into. But before we do, are there any um, nutritional components to um, take into consideration when considering the models of macular degeneration? Uh, the first one I would say, without any question whatsoever, is vitamin D levels. Um, I'm a fundamental believer that vitamin D... Um, we get very little vitamin D because we, we synthesize it in daylight. So I, we're sitting in offices. We don't get that. Um, and we know that improve it, that taking significant amounts of vitamin D is associated with reduced risk in a number of issues. One other thing, which will be published on the 29th of April, is a big study that I'm involved in where we change the gut biome in animals. Now, if we take an old animal and we change its gut biome and we make its gut biome that which we would find in a, a, a young animal, we remove 80% of age-related inflammation in the eye. Now, this is, this is a really, this is a study that had to be done with a large number of people, each throwing their skills into the, into the, into the, into, into the arena. And not only was this enormous effect found in the retina, it was found in the brain as well. Now, maybe it doesn't last very long. Maybe it only lasts maybe two to four weeks. But that is telling us that not necessarily our diet, but our diet that shapes our gut microbiome is having a very big impact on the aging process. And that I'm, I'm thinking really hard about that one because it's a simple thing to do. Is it the case that we just take one of these gut biome supplements uh, and we improve things because that's cheap, that's easy, that we can do to a population. And, you know, as you get older, you, your gut lining gets much thinner, many more of your gut micro, microbiome. Your, your, your gut contents have the ability to access other parts of your body. That is where I think in terms of public health, we should be paying some attention. That's fascinating. I hadn't heard of a connection between the gut biome and the eye, although it doesn't surprise me at all now that you mention it. Uh, yeah. did, you get, did you get any insight into whether it was something intrinsic about the bacteria themselves or the metabolites in which they produce? 
We don't know. Um, you know, I bring this up with the gut biome experts. I'm not a gut biome. I say, I say the obvious thing, which one is it? And they said, well, there's 10,000 plus. How are we going to find out? And so there are very often points in science where you say, stop. We're not going down this pathway. It's going to absorb enormous amounts of energy. Um, so maybe we take, a, we take something, a, 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 something to supplement our gut biome, which has got, you know, I don't know, thousands of different bacteria in it. And we just say, fine, fine. Many of these are absolutely useless. They're not doing something. But something is in that package which is working. You know, and it's going to work for the quality of life as we get older. And so I think, well, let's let's stop searching. And this is a really good reason to search. Let's stop searching. We know it works. I, you've got to be pragmatic about these kind of problems. That's so interesting. I, uh, I wouldn't have predicted that um, that kind of work is, is already being done, but I'm really glad that it is. Um, yeah. I have heard, uh, and you can... Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, I've heard that uh, DHA, um, the long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acid, is highly concentrated in the retina. Uh, yeah. Is that something that you're aware of? It is something I'm aware of. I don't necessarily have, have a handle on it. I am a very much a pragmatist. There are a few issues that are scientific that I want to get to the bottom of, and I'm going to dig that hole, and I'm going to find out what's going on. And that's very, very different taking a pragmatic attitude to public health. So I've reshaped my lab very much towards human problems, but that means that some of the biological problems that you pose, like that one, I am no longer in a position to do. You know, I'm a, I've taken all that kind of that biochemistry stuff out of my lab now. And I'm, I'm, I'm just grabbing people from the corridor and saying, I need to test you to do something. Will you do this with a red light? Will you take this dietary supplement? You know, will you go for a walk in the park and then come back and let me examine your visual system? That's where <laughs> we are now. And I tell you, it's cheaper. <laughs> There's nothing more expensive than running big mouse colonies. And it's much more relevant to the human condition. Um, I remember quite vividly a story from uh, Western A. Price's book uh, about uh, someone who uh, found themselves uh, stranded. They cra uh, crashed their plane and uh, they were going blind. And na a Native American found them and told them to eat some fish eyes um, because it would restore, help restore their eyesight. Uh, it turns out the fish eyes are really high in vitamin A. Um, have you heard any connection between uh, oh, vitamin A? Yeah, vitamin A is something that is used in the retina. Mm -hmm. No question, question. Now, I don't know. I don't know this story. I, I don't know what. The, but this guy may have had a serious, serious problem before he had a serious dietary deficit. I'm not sure. Generally, um, you've got to have something. You've got to have a platform for something to go wrong. And maybe that person had a platform for something to go wrong. Uh, but yeah, you know, so many of these things. Vitamin A is needed. It's an important part in the outer retina. So I didn't know about eating fish eyes. I'm not sure that's kind of particularly appealing, but, you know. <laughs> and I'm not sure that, a, you know, a native uh, person would necessarily know a lot about the physiology of the outer retina, its metabolism, but I'm not in a position to pass that comment, really. <laughs> yeah, probably not the best public health move to tell everyone to start no, eating fish no, eyes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I wanted to ask about the impact of artificial lights, particularly ones that are concentrated in the blue spectrum. Um, what impact is that having on eye health? Because it seems like 
um, the screens that we're using that are really uh, quite lit in in these around the 450 nanometer um, wavelengths are quite deleterious to eye health uh, altogether. So um, what impact do you feel that they are having on the population's eye health? I think it, this is a really large issue and it's, it's one of the areas we've moved into. Um, there is one wavelength range that is absolutely critical and it's 420 nanometers, give or take 10. And that wavelength is absorbed by mitochondria. And when they absorb it, they are very unhappy, very unhappy. So they reduce their function quite significantly. Now, most of screens are around 450. Um, I don't think screens are too much of an issue. Um, but there are a few things out there that are very telling. So 420 is turning up in very high-end televisions. Um, it's turning up in uh, BMW's new laser light uh, on their cars has got an enormous peak at 420. Um, some um, floodlights have got a big 420-ish uh, component. Now, with the laser light, there's been talk in the UK and um, some of the press have gone for it because people are saying, well, when I get a burst of these lights, it's not that I lose my dark adaptation. Something else is happening. And I'm sitting thinking there, yes, I, you know, I, I, we've got a good eye. And the team is going to be pushing that uh, shortly. We've done some experiments with 420, just on 420 on the skin. And the mitochondria and skin get really unhappy as well. So in life, there's a balance between red and blue light in terms of metabolic, their influence on metabolic function. Now, generally, it's kind of roughly okay. The things are in balance. But occasionally, we do things that are absolutely crazy. And, uh, you know, BMW's laser lights are, are absolutely a killer. I mean, they're phenomenal lights, incredibly powerful but I wouldn't stand in front of one. Um, and, and that technology is moving very firmly in that direction towards the 420s. Most people are unaware that mitochondria absorb very specifically at 420 and what its consequences are. And it ends up producing oxygen singlets that are really looking for something to grab onto. Um, and bad news, very bad news. And that story will develop. I have to ask you. Um, I was I was more thinking around the 450, but I was unaware that 420 was probably the the tip, like the most important uh, part of that blue spectrum to be wary of. Um, I have to ask you about uh, where are they being absorbed in the mitochondria because uh, John Metrophonus mentioned this that they do absorb it, but I wasn't sure where exactly they absorb the blue light. It's it's by porphyrin. Porphyrin right. is absorbing it, oh, okay. but you've also got porphyrin in blood. Yeah. So if you start exposing the body to large, actually on this case, I think it's 440, there's a study, and uh, they took people and they put them in swimming trunks and they gave them a big burst at 440. And the result, and they cannulated them and they looked at their bloods and um, their blood pressure dropped very significantly their heart rate went up to compensate and and I, the paper's rather lost um in a cardiology journal but i was looking at that and i was thinking okay porphyrin this is a porphyrin story um um you know there is and also this is now a big systemic thing right if, if you're affecting porphyrin in blood that is a su su systemic issue 
you are then affecting every organ in your body. So it's a big story. It's a big story. And, and you also have to remember now that we know uh, that there are mitochondria in your blood and that those mitochondria are respiring, which came out as a new story relatively recently. So we've got these lines of communication shooting all over the place. And, and blue light, blue light is, is plugging right into these lines of communication. That's fascinating. I, I have to ask you about skin. Uh, you mentioned that skin, um, presumably the keratinocytes um, are not happy when they're shined with um, 420. Um, no, when we, I mean, when we've done skin, which is mine and, uh, yeah, mine and a few others, um, we, we can pick up quite simply with near-infrared imaging we can pick up the signal from the mitochondria. We can watch mitochondrial respiration in real time. And that's what we watch. Um, I think we obviously, we pick up a bit of, we pick up a bit of a signal from muscle underneath as well. But the point is, it's not the eye. You know, it's, which we're talking about now, blue lights having an effect on completely different parts of the body. And if you think about it, well, that kind of, that makes relative sense. We're walking around outside, blue and red, hopefully in balance, um, but occasionally in life, not in balance. And also having a different balance at different times of the day. So the solar spectrum is very, very different early in the morning when the sun's low on the horizon than it is when it's right at the top of the, uh, at the top of the sky. So, I mean, there are, there are so many variables. It's, it's, it's a little bit concerning, but one of the team, one of our team, Bob Fosbury, um, was the lead for the European Space Organization on exoplanet atmospheres. And um, he's a great member of the team. He's teaching me things about atmospheric light I had no idea about. Absolutely. And that, you know, it's, it's, it's bringing people in that got different stories to tell that really contribute. And sometimes those people are, you wouldn't think that, you know, you bring someone in like that. And they would contribute to mitochondrial, you know, mitochondrial stories that we're developing. Um, and even better, you know, he's a retired guy who uh, was only really driven by the question. So great. Brilliant. I, I love when people from, um, you know, uh, places that are outside of, of your, you know, wheelhouse, you know, joining in yeah. and, and sharing their experience and you, and you start thinking about things in a different way. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Ex I need to be kicked and told, no, that's the wrong way to do it. And very often, I mean, when I was younger, I, that used to really annoy me. Um, I'm now realizing that everybody's got a different angle on things. And, you know, some of the angles are as simple as, is that worth doing? Mm. You know, is that, you know, why? Why are you doing that? And so, you know, when you get challenged by that, you need to think about that when you're cycling home. Why am I doing this? What is the reason? Um, and I think uh, it's one of the few things that comes with age that perhaps is a slightly better thing is a slightly more chilled attitude to taking on other people's point of view. Um, certainly been a big help for me. Awesome. Is it conceivable that um, the blue light on the skin is causing a circadian disruption at the level of the cells on the skin? I asked it, this, yeah. I asked this Sorry, question to Sachin Panda and he, he made it sound like uh, that, the intensity that you would get from a light, a like an overhead fluorescent is not enough to cause circadian, to cause um, transcription differences in, you know, the period genes and the cryptochrome genes. Uh, and I'm still quite skeptical about that. Uh, what, what do you think? 
I think the acid, the, the, the acid experiments have not been done. Right. They have not been done. Um, I think it's really important. Um, I think that some of the circadian people are quite siloed, as I was. Um, and, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm quite interested in the circadian thing. I got into it because red light only works in the morning. Why does red light only work in the morning? What is going on? All of these, all these organelles, all of these systems have got periods of sensitivity and periods of insensitivity. And I just don't know. I, you know you've got to be really careful because there are so many branch points in asking these questions. But we've evolved under a combination of red and blue light. And that has been critical for setting clocks. Uh, you know, our whole body has interacted with evolution through light for four or five million years. Of course, you know, light has had a big impact on setting clocks, natural light. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I wish I had enough life left in me to carry on with that. But I have to admit also I'm not a circadian biologist. Um I, I need to let's let's just jump into this uh, idea about shifting workloads for mitochondria. Um, I was looking through that paper again uh, yesterday, um, and it's fascinating to think that um, you know this photobiomodulation, this use of red light, is more effective to such a great degree at certain times of the day because of the way mitochondria are behaving because of the um, their capacity, I suppose, to produce energy. Uh, so can you delve into that a little bit more? I'd love to know uh, why. Well, it's totally consistent whether you're a fly, a mouse, a human, or you're, you're something, a cell floating around in a dish. Mitochondria are only receptive in the mornings. Now, and you get a burst of ATP in the mornings. So there is a big burst of ATP that occurs between lights on, in, on just before lights on, because you anticipate it, until about 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. I assume this is something like, you know, in evolution, you've woke up, you've been very vulnerable for a period of time because you've been asleep, and now you really need to hit the road. You really need to be aware of what's going on around you. Within that period, there are also hotspots, but I don't, I, I find it very, very difficult to map them carefully. Um, the... It's there. And the big problem that I have is I'm worried that I'm looking at mitochondria in a very monomaniacal way. I'm going, this is the bit I'm interested in. This is what. And, and that's a pathway to a problem because mitochondria do so many other things apart from generating energy, They're signaling, all the rest of it. And again, I don't want to be negative, but how the hell do you, you know, how the hell do you, get a comprehensive picture of what's going on. So I take, I, I'm slightly annoyed by some of my colleagues in development and they go, you know, KC7713 molecule does this in development. And I'm going, uh, no, no, it doesn't do that. It doesn't, it interacts with a whole series of things and is associated with, you know, to look at mitochondria just in terms of energy production is wrong. It's just wrong. And, we're also having to think of how this fits in with glycolysis. You know, you don't really want to do much glycolysis. It's a very expensive and inefficient way of generating ATP. Uh, but as you get older, your mitochondrial ATP production 
via the mitochondrial element drops like crazy in the retina by 70%, right, in primate retinae. But glycolysis goes up to compensate for it. So biological systems are just this massive interaction. And we, in the way that we want to analyze problems, pick out individual issues and we try and trace them through. And I think we do that very often to the extent that we lose the big picture. So the big picture with mitochondria um, is, is particularly mitochondrial signaling is enormous. I don't even have the handles on it. So I'm very, very cautious about it. I'm very cautious. Um, yeah. Well, while you're talking about big picture, um, I need to ask you about water. Um, it seems from a bio biology perspective, it doesn't get much bigger picture than water. Um, it's yeah. everywhere. Um, and it appears to me that one of, if not the most important job of mitochondria is to produce water. Um, and uh, you've written with John about how um, the water in, in the cell is different to that of the water that comes out of the tap. Um, yeah. This is uh, Gerald Pollack's work. Um, and I was wondering what, what influence does this changing idea of water have on the way you look at mitochondrial function? Okay, so the, I think the story here is everybody's trying to look at why red light is having an effect on mitochondria. What's the mechanism? Um, in actual fact, my, cytochrome, which is what we all got excited about, cytochrome doesn't absorb red light. We've taken mitochondria, we've looked at them, we've shone red light on them. They don't absorb it. They're not interested. So that's, that, that, that story is a little bit kind of lost. However, uh, Sommer came along and um, he's an engineer um, and a physicist. And he came up with this explanation that red light is working because it's changing the viscosity of nanowater around ATP rotor pumps. So it reduces the viscosity. The pump then picks up momentum and it's able to hold that momentum um, even as the viscosity then starts to increase. So red light, you get a burst, it can last five days. Now, it's, it's a bit of a kind of a long story, but the winner on this one is that the wavelengths that are having an effect in terms of photobiomodulation overlap very strongly with the wavelengths that are absorbed by water. There's got to be something in that. I don't know what it is. There's got to be something in that. So of all the current stories on the table about why mitochondria are affected by red light, that's the one that that's the one that I put at the end of the discussion. It is thought that. And until someone comes up with a better theory, I'm going to stick with that. So, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. We've, yeah, I, we evolved in water. Water's yeah. really important. Yeah, I, I definitely think that, um, you know, water's probably uh, where the buck stops as far as looking at the influence of um, these red lights. Um, I mean, water is very strongly absorbing uh, red light and UV light, um, as it turns out. Um, so let's just turn to what you've been um, studying recently, which or in the last you know decade or so, um, which is using uh, around 670 nanometer light to restore uh, some of the pathologies of uh, macular degeneration. Well, in, in, to answer that one absolutely honestly, we ran a small clinical trial and it didn't work. Um, the reason we now know for this is we selected the wrong patient group. The, the patient group had established disease. 
And I think once it's got established disease, to be honest with you, I think our chances of getting it, correcting it are low. Um, we got a great response from the control group, which, which would tend to be the partners of the people that had AMD. Um, so I think this will work. It's just so there, there, there are many claims that are being made by companies selling devices about what's happening with AMD. And I cannot, I look at that and I think, no, I just cannot. I don't believe it. Don't believe it. However, there's one study that's just being finished in, um, in the UK by uh, a very good clinician. Um, and he's been very careful about selecting his patients. And also, he didn't know about the time of day effect, but he decided to do his patients, expose his patients with light before clinic every day. Right. So he did them early in the morning. He carefully selected his patients and he's got a great result coming out, a really great result. So um, this guy called Ben Burton, and I know he's done it properly. I know he's done it carefully. So, yes, I think we can have an impact on AMD, but you've got to do it at the right time. You've got to do the right energy. Bum, ba -dum, ba -dum, ba -dum. Uh, you get those right and it will work. But of course, if you're producing a big machine, and you're charging a lot of money for that machine, you're going to tell people, well, yeah, of course, you know, you want maximum use of this machine, use it whenever you need to use it during the day. So the data that's been presented from some of these companies has been highly selective, highly selective. So I think it will get there. I think it will get there. Um, we're following a few people over a long period of time that have chosen to use red lights who do have AMD. It's not part of a clinical trial. And that, again, looks good. But we have to remember that there is so much noise in the human data, so much noise. Uh, but uh, we got it wrong. Other people have got it right. But we know why we got it wrong. So therefore, we can we can actually say, look, let's let's go with these guys that are getting it right. But to do this, you don't need a big machine to do this. A little old lady came to me. I had to exclude her from a trial very kind of upset with me and she gave me she came to me with a battery and an led and she joined them red led and she said glenn will that work we took it away we measured it and i said yeah that'll work that will work absolutely fine yeah this is this is and you know in the, what in the end what we want to do is we want to change the light bulbs let's change the light bulbs it's a simple straightforward thing but the lighting industry will not listen if you you know the lighting industry is driven by the um cost how much does it cost to produce one unit of light and they're very insensitive to the fact that light has biological effects until someone takes them to court still someone takes them to court then we'll get it changed but this is low technology this is this is really low technology so let's talk specifics about um what what this looks like when people come and uh are enrolled in your studies what are they doing exactly When we, well, when we give people light, we, we generally give them a device. Um, currently, we're using some devices made in Australia. Um, and um, we just tell them to use it in the mornings, that the times that we're now using for effective exposures are down to just over a minute at the right time of day. Um, and um, one burst of light will generally last about four or five days. So we're not interfering with your life. You know, this is something that you're doing while you're standing in front of the mirror. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very straightforward. So that's all we ask them to do. 
And then we bring them in, we test their color vision, we test a whole range of different things. Um, we do have one student who, you know, was very busy getting that time down, getting that time down, getting that energy down. Energies we're, lose, we're using now are a 40th of what we were using a year ago, and we've still got an effect. So if we shift the wavelength a bit longer, so let's, let's take it to 800, the energies that we're using, you're going to barely see, just going to barely see them. That's where I want it to go. Um, you know, little simple cheap devices um, that you use once a week. So is, I think you're using 670 at the moment. Is that, is that correct? We're using 670 because everybody else has. Right. Everybody. So we got the data on that. But every time I delve into longer wavelengths, I get the same result. And loads of people have done longer wavelengths all the way up to about 900. Um, you get good results. So do you prefer longer wavelengths because by the time you get longer and longer, there's nothing really, nothing to actually look at to perceive. So you, you can look straight at it. Is that, is that the idea? Yeah. Yeah. It's not disturbing. It's not right. disturbing. So we've got, we've got these devices now in, commercial beehives in France, because the bee population is suffering desperately through climate change and through the use of insecticides that specifically target mitochondria. So we put 670 devices in there, but the great thing about that is the bee doesn't see above mm, 640. So the bee doesn't even see it at all, just doesn't see it. And the outcome, the bees live longer, um, they're, they're, they don't suffer at all when they're hit with insecticides and the, the effects are quite dramatic. Um, if you start moving bees around, which they do in California a lot to pollinate crops and the big lorries, uh, when I'm, I, I, I've been regularly sticking bees in, 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 uh, in my rucksack and cycling them home and bringing them back into work the following day, which is really stressful. Um, and 20% of them die but I only get five or 6% deaths if they've had a burst of red light beforehand. So 670, just the nice sort of thing about 670 is when we did all those mouse experiments, I needed to go into the room and see the light was working because mice sometimes find a cable to chew through. So I couldn't do 800, you know, because I stick my head around the door each morning. I mean, I, those lights come on. Yeah, the lights have come on. 670 was fine. There is no reason. I mean, the advantage of using 800 is it also penetrates deeper. Yeah. It will go deeper. Um, so we're just about to move to a 10. Um, again, really, because you can barely see a 10, barely see it um, and produce strips that, you know, strips that um, you can actually stick on the top of your computer screen and the strip will come on. You'll barely see it right. Um, at the right time of day and then turn off and you, you won't even notice it. So as far as the results go, are these uh, the people getting results where they go, wow, I can actually tell the difference between before and after. Like I can uh, feel in myself that my color acuity is better and that my, um, my, I'm able to distinguish fine features a little bit better. Or is this um, sub-perceptual um, changes that, that you're seeing? Uh, in most people, it's sub-perceptual, mm -hmm. but I would say in 10%, People who are very observant. And one guy came back to me and said, well, you know, I got the train home and I, I was going past the advertising hordes and the colours were, you know, he was a scientist, the colours were clearer. Another guy said to me, you know, I wake up in the morning and I look at the curtain, which has got a pattern on it. 
And yeah, it's sharper. Most people are unaware of it, but you can have massive changes in your vision and you don't know they've happened. The brain is correcting all the time for changes in vision. So it's there in everybody we have tested, it's there. That improvement in color contrast is there. The improvement in dark adaptation function is there. Um, and you can show them the results, you know, you show them psychophysical results and go, yeah, uh, but some of them don't notice it. Yeah. You know, you can lose vast quantities of your visual function with glaucoma, but you don't notice it until you bump into chairs. Yeah. Right. So, you know, that's, that's the issue. Yeah. And how does, how does this treatment stack up to uh, viewing uh, early morning sunlight? I know there's quite a big um, group of, people who are making it uh, a very important part of their day to first thing when they wake up is go out and watch the sun creep over the horizon. Um, is that giving a similar effect? I mean, the we know the AM is uh, densely populated with uh, these red and near-infrared and, and infrared frequencies as well, as uh, wavelengths as well. So how does that stack up? Well, you know, in the morning when the sun's low on the horizon, atmosphere is filtering a lot of light, a lot of light. And it's the ozone in the atmosphere, which is doing a lot of that. So you can actually get quite a loss of some wavelengths in the mornings. To be honest with you, I don't, again, I don't have an answer. I know when I get up in the morning and I have my cup of coffee and it's in the garden and the sun's just coming up, makes me feel good. But there's a lot going on early in the morning. There's really a lot going on in terms of, you know, circadian biology. I don't know how it fits in, but I would agree with them standing in the morning, you know, when the sun's low on the horizon, it does feel good. But there again, when I stand in my garden at 11 o'clock and 12 o'clock, I'm already getting tired, fed up. I've faced a lot of problems. The world's beaten me up a little bit, you know, so I think there are a lot of alternative explanations. Interesting. And and what, what do you think about um, the habitual wear, uh, use of wearing glasses. I know that um, the, the lenses do seem to block out some of the infrared uh, and some of the UV. Do you think that long-term use of um, glasses can damage the eyes by filtering some of these frequencies out? We've started doing experiments filtering out 420. And we did it on about 20 people. And in half of them, we had a very interesting improvement in vision. The other half, we had absolutely no effect. Again, noise in the humans, I don't know why. So I'm going back, I'm replicating, I'm replicating, I'm replicating until I'm, until I'm comfortable. But we just get people to wear yellow filters and uh, we ask them to wear them for an hour and then we test them on a whole range of different things. Um, I think there is an important element in that story. Um, I'm not wearing yellow glasses, so I suppose, or yellow tinted glasses. I'm not so, too worried about UV because UV generally doesn't get through the cornea and the lens. Right. That's not a wavelength that worries me. 420 worries me because that goes straight into the retina. Mm -hmm. um, so the UV question is, a, is, I think, a bit of a non sequitur. I did a lot of work on, on Arctic light, and I'm standing in the Arctic, and I cannot... I cannot open my eyes. I have to put goggles on. If I don't put goggles on, I will get snow blind. I yeah. will get snow blind because um, my lens and cornea are blocking UV and I'm getting sunburn. 
but I'm standing next to a husky and a reindeer and they're standing there staring at it. They don't get, they don't get any kind of snow blindness. They're letting all this UV through. So I grab an old, we used to do a lot of physiology on reindeer. I grab an old reindeer and I say, look, has your, has your visual system suffered because of all this UV? And it hasn't. Mm. So I'm not sure about the UV story. Just not sure about it. So how much, if any, UV penetrates the, the cornea and the lens? Well, if you turn the power up, you'll always get some through. Just, so, just from natural sunlight? Oh, almost nothing. Very, mm. very little. Very little. Um, is it possible so, that the little that does come through is having physiologic effects? It is possible. It's possible. So if you sit in a room with a, with a UV LED and you turn it on, you see nothing. Mm. But then as you turn the power up, you do eventually see something. You know, you will eventually see something. Depends on the power. So it will go through if it's got a big enough kick of energy. Um, but that kick of energy is not really around in normal daylight. Right. Okay. So I'm not, I, I, I think that story is somewhat overblown. I also found it really interesting when I went around a number of my colleagues and they said, well, we've got UV blocking glasses. And I took their glasses and, you know, I tested them. I said, you know, I don't know what you paid for this, but, you know, it's not working very well. So I, I think that's a bit of a bit of a con from from some optometry outlets. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when when you know that no one's going to test it, then you can pretty much sell whatever you want. <laughs> exactly. Not everybody's got a radiometer and a spectrometer in their back room, but yeah. we do. <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask you maybe a bit more of an obscure question, but as we go further out in the um, near infrared to infrared section, we can no longer see these waves. Um, and we know once we keep going further and further, we get microwaves and radio waves. Are you aware of any effects of microwaves and radio waves on, on the eye health at all? No, I'm not aware of it. Um, I'm not aware that it has been done systematically, but you're taking me a little bit out of my comfort zone. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, that, that is, that is an issue. So I don't know. I just don't know. Mm, yeah. I, mean, I don't, the, you know, the I don't think anyone knows. So no, I mean, the obvious thing is warming up mm. to things warm up. I mean, when, when I put my hand against a 900 a nanometer led against a, a 670, I can feel the difference in the warmth, yeah. but I don't think it's an issue. Um, I wanted to ask you also about um, the, the use of uh, near infrared light for um, repairing skin damage, I suppose, or, you know, repairing wrinkles. Um, and maybe your experience with, uh, not experience with, but your knowledge of a story with L'Oreal as well. I've heard that, yes. Yeah, because in one of your talks, you spoke about um, a lab that was looking into this and then they got bought up and shut down by uh, L'Oreal because... It could that, cause them to lose money. That is a story I have heard. Right. right? And I, I don't know if it's true, uh, but NASA came out with a, you know, NASA was one of the first people to show that wound healing is faster under red light. I don't know why they did that experiment. But also it was the case that in the wound healing, there was less wrinkling. Right. Now, now we know lots of things that we do know. I'm not in the least bit surprised. Yeah. I am not in the least bit surprised. Um, 
Whether the L'Oreal story really holds water or not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And I don't want to put myself in a situation where I had kind of lawyers at my, <laughs> at my front door. I am not sure it was a story that was going around quite heavily at one point. Right. Um, but if I can sell you an LED for $2, and and that can that can re- if not reduce your wrinkles, reduce the rate at which the wrinkles are occurring. That's a better investment than fifty dollars for a little tub of cream. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean it's interesting because I've seen um, some of the research looking into um, the effects of blue light on the skin uh, are coming out of Estee Lauder um, researchers. So um, I when I first saw a paper like that, I I told a few people that you'll see creams coming out that say they block blue light and i think about a year and a half later um there was a cream on the market that did exactly that so it doesn't surprise me that um these cosmetics companies are really starting to look into the effects of light um which is interesting yeah yeah i i i they'd be crazy not to wouldn't they they'd be crazy not to but they're going to find it tough to make money selling LEDs. Yeah. Uh, there are, um, there's a, uh, a company that makes big LED beds, you know, big things you wrap your body in. And um, I said to them, you know, in six seventies, I said, do you sell any of these? And he said, we were, we sold five, you know, thousands of dollars, five. And, he said, and it was all to one postcode in LA. So, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's gone to, you know, the implication was it's Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. where people have got money and are quite vain. So you've made a few points of saying that this treatment really only starts to work, um, you know, it doesn't have that much of a, an effect of people under 40. Um, and I was wondering, is is there any um, maybe benefit, a preventative, um, as using it as a preventative measure? You know, I'm not 40 yet, but um, would it be useful for me to do it maybe once a week or once a fortnight? Um... Absolutely no, no harm. And I suspect there are preventive effects. I suspect there are. Um, doing experiments on people, trying to get uh, recruit subjects, particularly in a COVID type environment, has been a nightmare. Absolute mm. nightmare. Um It is certainly the case that on the metrics we use, the effects on under 40-year-olds are less. In many of them, there is still an effect. It's smaller. Um, So, yeah, prophylactically, taking it to avoid a problem. I think that's probably, you know, I think that's probably a really good idea. Particularly also if you're you're stressed, if you're in an environment where you're stressing yourselves. Hmm. Yeah, I've, I've seen a paper that exposed, I think it was um, RPE cells to blue light and then it exposed them to red light afterwards and it re- it recovered the damage that was done. So I think... That is correct. Yeah. And it's a good story. It's a good story. I know there was one thing that I did want to ask you about, something that I had heard um, and written about a little bit by a guy called John Ott who wrote a book called Health and Light. Um, and that's that... Uh, the type of light that you expose your eye to can remodel the lens so it can change the way that the lens is shaped. Um, I was wondering if that's actually true or that's just something that some people say. To be honest, I really don't know. 
um, I'm, I'm out again. I'm out of my comfort zone here because I'm I'm a neuro person, so I'm a back of the eye person. To be honest with you, if this had been a big issue, I'm pretty sure I would have heard about it. I mean, right. I'm, I'm you know I knock around with research optoms all the time. I've never heard of that one, but th that's not a criticism. It could well be the case. I just don't know. Okay, all right. Um, I've also heard from. Um some researchers in ophthalmology that uh, the act of uh, this forward ambulation, so moving forward, particularly in the morning and having things, you know, move past you uh, at walking or running pace is actually um, quite beneficial for um, brain function, particularly in the morning. Uh, have you have you heard of any reason why that might be? I, I've heard stories like that, but from a neuroscience point of view, I see no rationale for it whatsoever. I just, I, I, I just don't, don't get. So um, Steve Dakin, who was kind of pretty big in, in, in movement and he's in Auckland, um, you know, that's very much kind of his territory. And I, I have heard nothing that makes me feel that that's any better than anything else. Um, so you know, there's lots of visual illusions based on motion, lots of them, you know, motion that, that, that's created. Um, so, you know, if you stand and you look at a waterfall on your screen and then you, the, the waterfall stops and you're still looking at it, you'll see the waterfall going backwards, right? It'll just appear to go backwards. So there's lots of going, going on in motion, and, but I'd never heard that there was any particular evidence for motion being significant in the morning and if there is i mean i just didn't, don't see what the neural machinery for that is i just don't i, would, I wouldn't get it you know Interesting. You'd, you'd find it hard to convince me right right um I, I would love to hear a little bit more about your experience working for a particular drug company um in a trial that used a placebo of cyclodextrin <laughs> um you know this, this it's a fascinating story and i i think stories like this don't get shared very often for obvious reasons. And uh, it is quite an intriguing insight into the way that the pharmaceutical industries work. Um, so what was it your is. experience like? Um, my experience with that company was generally very good. I mean, and I don't work with pharmaceutical companies really anymore because many of my experiences have been very poor. We're talking about... Uh, conversations where we don't meet. Um, clearly they profit, they want a product, they want to know if the product is working and that's the end of the story. That particular issue, they were using cyclodextrin as a control. Cyclodextrin is this molecule, it's a sugar, totally safe, you can drink it. It's a sugar and it's got a, it's got a hole in it and that hole is a vacuum cleaner. And it goes around and it clears up rubbish. But you can also use that hole to deliver something. Right? So you put something in the hole in the sugar and you deliver it to the site and the cyclodectrin dumps it. And it's a, it, in terms of kind of biological manipulation, it's very powerful. It has not been used enough. Um, their problem was um, that, um, okay, that the molecule was being dumped from the cyclodextrin, but the cyclodextrin, the real action that was taking place was that once the cyclodextrin had dumped its load, it looked around for some rubbish to pick up to take home. That was that was where the main effect was. And they were 
very reluctant to believe. And, and I was horrified when the data was coming out and going, guys, the, the control is, is actually better than the, than, than the drug. Something is terrible that's going on. And we, we had our hearts on our, you know, our, we just didn't know what until someone actually said, hang on, this, this molecule here has got other properties. Again, it was a conversation in a corridor. I asked someone, mm. he said, oh, no, no, no. He said, that will clear all that stuff up. So what the drug company did was not wrong, but it was the, it was the wrong control for that experiment. And unfortunately, they'd gone so far down the road that they couldn't turn the ship around. They'd spent a lot of money and um, they, um, they were then a little bit reluctant to let us publish the data. But the lead scientists on their side, this is where it was a good side, actually, we should tell the world about this because maybe cyclodextrin should be talked about more as a potential molecule in picking up age-related extracellular deposits because it is this vacuum cleaner. And in the end, after a, you know some chatting and a little bit of encouragement, the scientists, and it was a small drug company, the scientists went to the managers and said, look, we should, we should let them publish this. And, and we did. So everybody learned. Everybody learned from it. Um, they, they wasted a lot of money, um, but the world learned something which was rather good. And in the end, they were okay about that. But drug companies very, very often have got very narrow views on where they're going. And, you know, I'm the guy now saying, look, hang on, we've got to look at the horizon and left and right and understand what's the context of this. And they tend not to employ scientists that are good at looking at the horizon. They tend to employ people who do small mechanisms, small mechanisms without the context. Um, and, you know, that can be both a strength and a weakness, but it meant that we didn't gel with them terribly well. But we found a compromise. I mean, we all, we all left the table happy with one another. It wasn't a disaster. And that was, um, that was good. So that was my last, no, we have one other interaction with a drug company, uh, but you can't carry on taking n number of small molecules and testing them out and saying, is this going to help AMD? Okay, fine. And then I suddenly started standing there and saying, we're doing all this in mice. We're looking at the visual system of a mouse. The mouse doesn't want to see anything. It wants to live in darkness, as I say. Its immunity bears no relationship to the immunity that we have. Its immune profile is radically different. Most of them are interested in trying to get rid of amyloid beta. Amyloid beta is the thing that we all love to hate. But, you know, they put molecules in that, that antibodies that start taking out amyloid beta. Now, when you do that, the interesting thing is um, in some of the studies that have been done in humans, first of all, it doesn't work very well. Secondly, there are visual problems. Now, what people don't very often acknowledge is that amyloid actually is a functional protein that is needed in certain parts of the visual system, in certain parts of the brain. We know that it gets, it starts overproducing. We know too much of it is bad, but you can't strip it out. You can't strip it out unselectively. If you can go in and say, I want to take, um, I want to take 30% of this type of amyloid out and leave the rest. That's good. That's, you know, we would, we would be up for that. But just going in and stripping out amyloid, uh, you know, particularly in the Alzheimer's literature, 
this has generally been a disaster. You know, no one has really come to market with, you know, sort of a, an antibody to do stuff like this that has worked, just not worked. So, you know, um, yeah, yeah. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, where do you see the research in your lab heading over the next few years, you know, uh, and, and where do you think the research in photobiomodulation in general is headed? It's got to go into the public domain and it's got to go into public lighting. That is the, it's got to be there for the public. It's got to be away from specialist devices that cost money. It's got, we've got to drag Philips and Osram into the room and say, this is going to cost more, but you do this. That is where it's got to be. That, that is, I'm not interested in producing expensive devices. I'm interested in expanding it for the world. That's going to be, that's, 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 that's what, when they screw me in the coffin, that's what, what I want to have done. Fantastic. I couldn't think of a better thing. I think uh, public lighting is one of the most important things we need to think about right now. And um, I'm so glad you said that. Um, and hopefully um, people like yourself and, and your colleagues can really uh, start to get through to these big companies and, and make them realize that this is a big issue. Uh, so thank you for your work. No, it's a pleasure. And you know, I just actually, we've got some, I, some results I can't tell you about, but we've got some results with mitochondrial disease. And when we saw the results, the whole lab went, that's why we're here. That's why we're here. That justifies all those experiments on flies. It justifies everything. It was with a couple of kids. And I could have cried, <laughs> to be honest, but I just felt we delivered. That's where we need to be. Fantastic. I'm, I'm so glad that you're, you're doing the work that you're doing. Uh, I'm, I'm very, very uh, pleased that you're continuing to publish and, and the papers that, that, are, uh, that you've been involved with are, I think, a real guiding light. So uh, I think that would be a great place to leave this conversation and hopefully uh, people can learn a lot from it. Cameron, I'm here if you need me at any point because actually I need people like you to tell the world that this is here. Yeah? yeah. So great. Thank you for your time. I've appreciated it. Sorry we didn't talk earlier. <laughs> Glenn, it's been, a, it's been an absolute honor to uh, speak with you. Thank you so much. Okay, you take care, Cameron. Okay. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it and learned a lot from it. If you'd like to keep up to date with Glenn's work, I've put a link to his university page where you can find all of his publications in the episode notes. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on Spotify and YouTube, and you can leave up to a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This is a simple, no-cost way to support my work and help me reach more listeners. Also, please feel free to leave comments on my YouTube channel as I do try and read through as many as I can. I've also put links to all of my social media platforms in the episode notes if you'd like to keep up to date with the podcast, information about health, or if you'd just like to reach out to me in general. Thanks for listening, everyone. Take care.